Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 26th of February, 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Brian Gerrish. I'm delighted to uh, have Alex Thompson with me, who will be speaking from the Netherlands. We've also got Mark Anderson coming in from the United States. And we have two special guests today, so stay posted for, for that. But we're going to kick off straight away with uh, a little look into what's happening in Poland. Think are really heating up with the farmers' strikes. And over the weekend, I was looking at a lot of trouble on the uh, border with Ukraine, where a lot of grain is now being destroyed by, it would appear, farmers or their agents. Alex, welcome to the news. What have you got? Brian, there has been a spate of protests and parliamentary dissent against the EU-coordinated policy of importing large amounts of Ukrainian grain, which is a complicated sideshow of the Ukraine war. The Western allies of Ukraine had promised uh, to help get the grain out of what they call a Russian blockade of the ports. Uh, from Poland down to Bulgaria, farmers were taking action. The Poles, as they did in the communist era, have shown themselves to be the most rigorous in this regard. They are now in the middle of a one-month farmers' strike. Poland is just about the sixth most populous and also um, largest um, similarly um, ranked uh, area of an EU member state. It is not a minor player. Uh, It was uh, during the, the communist era... The, the rural branch of solidarity uh, that played a major part in the downfall of communism in the 1980s, along with the better known dock workers in Gdynia uh, up on the, the Baltic coast, also called solidarity. Now this independent union called Farmers Solidarity uh, is in the middle of this one month strike, which will last till the 10th of March. Uh, we have been given some covering words for it uh, by our friend Sir Julian Rose, who splits his time between Britain and Poland and who is married to Jadwiga Lopata, who's high up in the uh, Farmers Union and has a, has a long track record of campaigning for them. Sir Julian introduces the strike thus. It's going to be a very big push and will complement other protests taking place throughout Europe. We showed the extent of that uh, on a map a couple of weeks ago. Sir Julian adds, Poland has the largest number of family farms in Europe, over one million of them. So for a population in the 40 to 50 million range, that just shows you how many there are. These farms are a vital resource, not just for national food production, but also for the maintenance of unique levels of biodiversity, something that Sir Julian and, and Jadwiga have been very keen to promote. He continues, particular to this Polish farmer's effort will be a central attack on the Green New Deal. I've been reporting from Brussels and countries near Belgium on how the Western European farmers uh, have taken against this and forced some concessions already from the European Commission. So Julian says that this uh, Green New Deal issue is critically important vis-a-vis ensuring a future for all farmers and farming. Uh, He says the Green New Deal links directly into the UN Agenda 2030 sustainability programme, whereby the World Economic Forum proposes to 100% disenfranchise farmers and substitute synthetic genetically modified laboratory foods for real food grown in real soil, which, by the way, is Sir Julian's uh, lifetime commitment and what made him a friend uh, of uh, Charles when he was still Prince Charles. Uh, so there's the extent of the protests. The uh, Polish news page from which I've got this will be in the show notes. You will see that the more secular and industrial West and North are equally well represented in these protests, along with the more Catholic, rural and small farm dominated East and Southern flank uh, of Poland. The solidarity movement still exists. People will recognize this flag if they were around in the time of Lech Wałęsa's protests. Uh, their rural branch has put this out. 
this statement, our patience has been exhausted. The position of Brussels as at the end of January 2024 is unacceptable to the entire agricultural community. In addition, the lack of response from the Polish authorities and their declarations of cooperation with the European Commission, along with announcements from Warsaw about respecting all EU decisions on the import of agricultural and food products from Ukraine, which you were alluding to, Brian, leave us with no choice but to declare a general strike. They go on. We cannot accept the implementation of the European Green Deal. Now, this is the key thing, Brian. No German, French, Dutch, Italian, Spanish farmers union at national level, no clouty member state other than Poland has seen all its farmers, in, at least in the, the form of a whole union, say this. They reject the Green Deal. They reject the farm to fork strategy promulgated by Brussels or the lobbyists who steer Brussels. And they reject that old cornerstone of the EU from the old 1960s and 70s days, which Mrs. Thatcher did battle with, the common agricultural policy. All of that they overturn or wish to. They continue, the Polish government must present a clear plan for agricultural production, its profitability, reconstructing domestic processing. We will fight for this until it happens. Polish farming families are the foundation of our country's food security. And they conclude, we ask our compatriots to be understanding and aware of the situation in which we all find ourselves, because of course there's blockades and food shortages now in Poland too. And they say we are fighting for our common good, which is to save Polish family-owned, often multi-generational farms, from collapse and bankruptcy. My assessment is they will get it much uh, further along than Western European farmers, not casting aspersions on Western European farmers or their support base, but the Polish situation is so unique that I think this really will make Brussels take notice. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for that, Alex. Uh, it is good to see people finally starting to stand up and be counted. And obviously the farmers Europe-wide, including now UK, are actually taking that challenge. But we have other people who are now doing a, an extremely good job in challenging authority in an appropriate way, local authorities. And I'm delighted to welcome back Rachel um, Matthews, who has been working with um, Colchester Council Watch. She joined us for an extra a little while ago. We're delighted to have us have her with us on the news today. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you very much for giving up some of your time. Okay, we thought um, we thought we would just kick off the little video clip here of um, you in action, and you got a remarkable result from a local councillor. Let's have a look at this little clip. Finally, I've been told that councils have a legal obligation to provide land for people to grow food. If that is true, is this being done sufficiently? Or are bicycle lanes taking precedence these days? Thank you. Um, on your last point, the good news is that there are some allotmenteers meeting in the, in the next room talking about their allotments and how to make the most of those plots. And I, as a 50% allotment owner, do grow my own food that way as well. So good, good thing to raise. Your fundamental question around has, have we scrutinized the climate emergency? Well, we haven't, have we, in this forum in here? Um, I'm gonna make you an offer. If I'm reelected in May, we will scrutinize it in this forum because I've seen and heard enough of your presentations to intrigue me enough to want to scrutinize it. And this is a spoiler. I say that as someone who didn't vote for a climate emergency in the chamber, because I wasn't elected when that vote was called. And so the information that you are continually bringing here is such, rather like what we talked about earlier this evening, there are legitimate questions. And the best form of disinfectant is sunshine. So I welcome the conversation, 
And if I'm elected after May, if the panel are minded, I'm very happy to bring it here as a formal item and have, uh, and have a, a substantial look at it for you, if that's okay. That's a brilliant offer. I hope your colleagues are as open as well. And I know Councillor King is also keen to have a debate, and I realise you've got a lot on your plate with um, the budget, etc. But if we can have a date, we can bring those climate scientists in, because it's all very well us turning up, but why should you believe us? You need to ask the climate scientists. So if you can provide us with a date, we will bring them, and you'll be able to ask them for yourselves, because we have it in writing from your climate officers that no dissenting information was looked at. And that simply isn't acceptable. This council must consider all the available information. Thank you very much. Well, Rachel, that was the little video clip. Um, welcome. Tell us in your own words um, what, what you actually did on that day and what you feel about the response from that uh, particular councillor. I was quite surprised by his response. It, it caught me off guard, to be honest. But um, we went in asking for them to scrutinise whether the climate, see whether they had enough information, whether they should have done. Um, as you know, we've been going in for about a year now, presenting them with various information from how the solar panels and EVs, etc., really aren't the green solution that we've all been told that it is because of the environmental pollution creating them causes, uh, not to mention in some cases the slave and child labour involved in them. Um, and gradually their excuse has been it's because of CO2. So we've gone back and said, well, look, CO2 can't possibly cause the amount of warming your cells. And have you looked at any dissenting information? And over a year of us continually going in, they're beginning, or some are, not uh, he's in the opposition, the, the people running the council, they're, they're open to debate, so they say, but they're not actually giving us a date as yet. But we, we keep going in and applying that pressure because they have said they are open for a public debate. So, OK, let's have one. Um, but yes, that particular councillor does seem to be much more open than most. Although in the comments on the YouTube video, he did get an awful lot of flack for not immediately offering us to scrutinise it and to only if he gets voted back in again. Now, my understanding is that, you know, their workload, his dance card is well and truly full, if you like. They can't fit it in before the May elections. So that was the very best he could offer. Um, but yes, it, it's certainly showing that they are more open than a lot of councils. Well, Rachel, thank you for that. And I think um, an opening has been made there and that should should obviously be pushed through in the nicest way. It's not always the best tactic, as, as uh, we've seen, for people to be pressured and pressured just to get the result. And I, I thought it was wonderful what you actually did. And of course, you've always approached these meetings by sitting and calmly taking them through what the, what the questions are, what the experts are saying, what the weakness is in their argument. And he, he was clearly responding to that because he was saying to you, I've paid attention really to what you've been talking about. So I'm going to encourage our audience to look at that uh, video in its entirety because you've got a lot of information as well as the interaction with the council itself. Um, where, where are you going now? I know that you've put out another uh, video, which we have a tiny clip from, but how, how are you approaching things now that you've got this result from them? Well, we're trying to sort of get them to see where net zero 
goes because a lot of them are pushing for policies that they don't know the end result. They don't realise that actually if you follow net zero through to absolute zero, they plan to uh, stop all shipping, flying, uh, importing of food. And at the same time, they are covered farmland in solar panels. The government are directing our farmers not to grow food if they get, I think a farmer said four times the amount of money if they rewild it or plant trees than they do if they grow crops. So it's a very dire situation when you can see that our ability to produce food is being attacked on every front, all because people are worried about CO2 that hasn't isn't a strong enough forcing agent to cause the level of warming they say it is anyway so the whole lot is just doesn't make any sense so we're going back demanding and this was because of a conversation with sandy adams she pointed out uh, what they're doing in somerset and she showed a map of all the potential areas they could put renewables on and it was virtually every last piece of farmland. Now, that's not to say they would cover it all, but because renewables don't produce the amount of energy that they need, they are going to have to basically cover the whole of England in them. So there is something in the 13 critical infrastructure food is one of those things included. So what we are doing is going back to our councils and recommending that everybody up and down the country does this to demand that food security is put on the local plan. And that is that plan is legally binding. So therefore, if they do an analysis of how much farmland we must retain for food security, and that's written into their local plan, then the councillors have a reasonable reason to turn down planning on solar farms. At the moment, there's very little they can do about it because the gov government consider it critical infrastructure. Right, Rachel, thank you for that. And food security, uh, it's got sort of force in that statement when you're coming back and you're saying to them, are you securing food production in the future? That's got some real gravitas. So it's, it's a brilliant angle. Let's just have a look at the second little clip and then we'll give you the opportunity for a little bit of comment on that. Now, whilst I do not claim to be an expert in farming or climate change, I do know people who are, and they were consulted in order to give accurate information in this speech. But at the end of the video, I'm going to put some clips from a real live farmer explaining exactly how awful it is in farming right now. Also at the end, there's going to be a climate change quiz for councillors. Let's test their knowledge, shall we? Good evening. Are you aware of the plight our farmers are facing? It's not just cheap imports and supermarket exploitation that's destroying the farming industry, but UN directives. Instead of helping farmers transition away from chemicals over to natural regenerative agriculture, our government is being directed to pay farmers to stop farming food to save the planet. We should be preserving biodiversity in areas like Middlewick, not sacrificing the farmland that feeds us. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, another excellent uh, clip, Rachel. But um, how did you feel about that, the delivery to that particular audience? Did you get a response? Not much because they had 15 members of the public. It's growing now coming to have their say. So because they've got such a busy evening, we didn't get the right of reply to their response. And their response was, oh, well, you do like to bring us some alternative information as in, you know, it, it's not settled yet. So go away. But yes, food security is important. And of course, we'll, we'll look at it. I'm sure they'll consider it on the local plan. So now we need to go back to a different committee now and keep pushing that local plan until they put food security on it.
but it was a shame because I had so much I wanted to say to them, but I didn't get that opportunity. Okay, Rachel, uh, utterly brilliant. And I'm sure that was very inspiring for uh, many people watching the news today. I hope you're going to be able to stay on with us for UK Column Extra because we can discuss this a bit more. But I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us today and giving that report. Now, um, shortly, we've got another activist, um, Artwell, who appeared with us a little while ago as well. I'm going to give him a little bit of an introduction by taking um, part of a report from the Oxford Mail. And here it is, Oxford critic Chaka Artwell has been disenfranchised. Now, we talked about this in extra time, but what I was interested here was the reporter, if we just bring her on screen, here she is, Noor Qureshi. And what do we notice immediately? She's the local democracy reporter. And um, we have talked about what that is many times, but I was fascinated at how this link worked. She is supposed to be reporting for the benefit of ordinary people in the local communities. But if we follow through on her Twitter or X, um, we quickly see that she's just repeating or reposting uh, an X from Councillor Emily Kerr, who's getting very excited because a global planning and city livability expert, Carlos uh, Marino from France, is coming to Oxford University to talk about the 15-minute cities concept. And, and he's already been featured in the local newspaper. So she's very excited about this. There's no real challenge. But let's have a look at the man himself. And it's very easy to do because we can go over to his uh, X page. And here he is, Professor Sorbonne. 15-minute uh, city creator, multi-awards, Architectural Academy, Leadership World Pioneer. And what do we see? That he's got a scroll of honour, which has come from the United Nations Human Settlements Programme. And this is where the rub starts, because this reporter who's supposed to be working for local uh, people is clearly working to help promote the UN agenda itself, even if she doesn't realise that's actually what she's doing. So if we go and have a look at the UN Habitat page, uh, which I did, it says that the global economic crisis and COVID-19 have exacerbated inequality and stalled sustainable economic development. It then says the world is not on track to achieve the sustainable development goals. So there's a bit of panic. And if we underline the next uh, uh, sentence we see here, it says that UN Habitat has consolidated the impl implementation of its strategic plan and advocated for recognition of the critical role of cities and local communities in sustainable development and multilateral processes. So this is not for the benefit of local people. This is using their city and their communities to get what the UN wants. And they've got big money behind it because if we have a little look at the funding page, always a good place to go, uh, we can see that not least there's uh, 207 uh, million US dollars coming in in cash contributions in order to drive this agenda. But uh, let's uh, just end on this. What is the local democracy reporter system all about? Well, actually, you're dealing with the BBC. Let's have a look at this clip. Local councils spend billions of pounds a year providing essential services which affect all our lives. They look after everything from bins to buses to social care. So knowing what they're up to is vital. The number of local journalists reporting on councils has been in steady decline. 
And that's where the Local Democracy Reporting Service, or LDRS, comes in. The LDRS finds out stories about UK councils and shares them with hundreds of regional news providers across the country. Local news companies employ 165 local democracy reporters. The BBC pays for them and more than a thousand approved news outlets can then broadcast or publish their work. And that means you and me, wherever we live in the UK, get to hear about what our councils are doing in our name. It helps the local news industry. It helps the BBC. But most of all, it helps us all know what's going on where we live. You can find out more by going to bbc.com forward slash LNP. So I'll just add very quickly before we bring our next guest on, can we trust the BBC's local democracy reporters? The BBC ultimately pays for them. The BBC supports the UN Sustainable Goals. So it's obvious what the BBC is going to affect. Are these reporters really talking about what is concerning people in local communities or are they helping to spread the message? And uh, if we just pop that one up on screen briefly, and do we trust them? No. And uh, the last thing is that there's already trouble over how much these people are paid. And uh, if you go on to the next slide, Stephanie, if you can do that, please. There we are. NewsQuest urged to pass on more of BBC funding uh, to 24K per year local democracy reporters. So lots of questions to be asked. But let's get straight into Oxford itself and welcome um, Artwell to the UK column. Artwell, you're an activist. Introduce yourself and tell us what you've been up to. Okay, well, the big news in Oxford at the moment is the Oxford Independence Alliance Party, which launched in February last year and was featured in last week's Oxford Mail with three candidates standing to give Oxford's voters a real alternative in the local elections. The Labour, Liberal, Democrat and Green supported anti-roadblock policy have become indistinguishable, depriving voters who are opposed to their anti-car policies of a political party to give their vote in the local election. The Oxford East roadblock policies cause difficulties for emergency services, serious congestion, whilst buses cannot keep to their timetable. With the emerging Labour, Democrat and Green anti-car policies in Oxford City and Oxford Shires County Council, there is an acute need for independent candidates to give the voters an alternative in the May elections. UK column viewers can help slay, save England's slide left-wing tyranny by becoming independent candidates in the May elections. Applications have got to be in the town hall by the end of March. Secondly, the father of Hollywood actress Miss Florence Plug and well-known Republican and supporter of the independence in local elections, Mr. Plug, has revealed he, his bar has been repossessed since the installation of Oxford East robot policies, he attacked the county councils for not insulting 
with oh East, obviously, see- before this was in 2022. Uh, well, re- really sorry. We seem to have a, um, a problem with your audio. You're breaking up there. Um, if you want to just check uh, check connections, and I'll just bring up the slide that you're really talking about. This is the first one where we've got the Oxford Independence Alliance candidates sharing pledges, and they had a photograph of your good self, um, uh, describing you as a long-time local campaigner who regularly holds Oxford City Council to account, challenging them on their policies and representing the needs of the community. And of course, you've previously made the point that the councillors failed to respond to your questioning emails. And this is the one that you just got on to. So again, from the Oxford Mail, uh, Florence Pugh's father loses bar and blames the local traffic networks for the stress and the problem. Um, this was a bit of the text here, um, but it says that he's been a long term critic of the county council's um, traffic networks and has previously put up a banner. Uh, but this is basically saying now that he's losing his business and he's also saying that the council has not consulted people. Um, let's try you back. Can you, uh, how, can you hear us okay now? Yeah, can, I, can, I can hear you fine. Can okay. you go to number three, which is about Councillor Duncan Enright? Can you hear me? Oh, okay. yes, yes, that's fine. That, that, that one's just here ready to go up on screen. You should be able to see that. Okay. Oxford Councillor yeah, on Traffic Filters Conspiracy Theory. Right. I mean, what he says is he says they were talking about is accusing his critics. They were talking about Klaus Schwab. And he says, I've never heard of it. And they were talking about the World Economic Forum. And he says, I have never heard of that. But I thought it was a meeting of business leaders and government leaders in Davos. He goes on to say that this was the only time I've come across Davos and they were saying you want to stop us going more than 15 minutes from our home. The question I ask, why do men and women with elected public authority always profess ignorance of the of the control from the powerful global elites. They always profess themselves to be completely in the, in the dark. Whilst globalist Carlos Menem, who, who Mr. Gerrish has already mentioned, will be coming to Oxford this Thursday, and I hope to have some information for UK column viewers and readers to uh, tell you how his presentation went across and what questions the Oxford audience has asked him. Coming down to Lord Sewell. Lord Sewell, a Conservative peer, visited Oxford's Fairer Spring Lecture with a presentation entitled The Ovency and Affirmation last Wednesday. Lord Sewell comprehensively excoriated youth for lacking the agency and the self-affirmation to overcome colour exclusion. He even attacked Mary Seacole, who's seen as a Caribbean heroine. The same affliction affects His Majesty's working-class subjects, who are similarly abandoned and ridiculed by their elected Labour parliamentarians, who even chastise them for displaying the Union Jack outside their homes. Why is the elected 
the public turn against the people who put them into public office is a quandary UK column viewers and readers need to tell me because I want to know the answer. The Speaker of His Majesty's House of Commons, the Right Honourable Sir Lindsay Hoyle, regularly berates cabinet ministers for briefing the media before addressing the Commons, as is the convention and the con- and the um, traditions. Last week, during the Scottish Nationalist Party ceasefire debate, the Speaker broke with convention to assist the Party's motion. I think, therefore, his position has become untenable. Right. Um, On uh, Saturday, the I... Well, if I can just come in there, I just wanted to say key point that you were making back there with um, that particular gentleman was saying that he really didn't understand there were these global organisations in position and he really didn't understand what they were doing. But anybody that challenged them was a conspiracy theorist. I just wanted to sort of ram that one home. Finish the one you're on very quickly, uh, if you will. This is the last one. Uh, I just... On say in the I newspaper, the headline was England offers Russian officials British citizenship to defect and pass secrets to MI6. This Miss Begum, who left England when she years to, to join the, the, the fighting in uh, Syria, has just lost her appeal and has had her citizenship revoked. It is so ignoble to, to, to revoke any of His Majesty's subject citizenship. I wonder if Miss Bajan's citizenship would have been revoked if the Home Secretary had not been an Asian Home Secretary. I think this is a, it's, it's a terrible thing to do, and I think we need to think carefully before we remove people's citizenship. Okay, uh, well, thank you very much for that. But uh, the key point is you are one of the many people now starting to challenge your local council on issues, the traffic, the 15-minute cities. And um, that is obviously going to produce an effect as well. So I'm going to say thank you for that contribution. A little bit of a shame that your sound was a a little bit broken up, but the message came across. So thank you for that. Let's bring Mark Anderson in with us and uh, see how the connection is from the United States. Mark, welcome. Everyone. Uh, The World Health Organization, your friend and mine, is very busy. As I reported last week, the intergovernmental negotiating body is engaging in two more sessions working on the pandemic instrument that's now being admitted to be a treaty. They're actually using the word treaty. The first session ends March 1st. There's another session in latter March. Last week's show notes, last Monday's show notes, will have those specific dates. Anyway, the new thing, this is brand new as of this past Friday, the International Pathogen Surveillance Network has launched the Catalytic Grant Fund for Pathogen Genomics. The World Health Organization, as of Friday, announced U.S. $4 million in funding from donors to create a catalytic grant fund for organizations working in pathogen genomic surveillance The fund will support projects across the world, particularly in low and middle income countries, to pilot projects and in so doing, create an evidence base for how to quickly scale up pathogen genomic surveillance, et cetera, et cetera. Let's move on from there. 
Um, this is a little more specific, so we'll break it down a bit. The initial grants for the Catalytic Grant Fund have been provided by, drumroll please, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and Welcome to support the International Pathogen Surveillance Network. The IPSN is a new global network of pathogen surveillance actors convened by WHO through a secretariat at the WHO Hub for Pandemic and Epidemic Intelligence in Berlin. The fund is hosted by the UN Foundation on behalf of the IPSN. And Pathogen Genomics Briefly analyzes the genetic code of viruses, bacteria, and other disease-causing organisms to understand, in conjunction with other data, how infectious they are, how deadly they allegedly are, and how they spread. That's what that is. With this information, scientists feel they can make better predictions. Let's move on from there. And the IPSN, this is a slide. I won't go into much of it. Basically, it's a global network of pathogen genomic actors brought together by the WHO Hub for Pandemic and Epidemic Intelligence to accelerate progress in this pathogen genomics and improve public decision health making, uh, public health decision making, excuse me, moving on from there. Uh, here, a little bit about Welcome. We're breaking this down. The history of Welcome. It was founded by Henry Welcome. He was born in the mid 1800s, died in 1936. He was a pharmaceutical entrepreneur. He left a large trust behind, and we'll we'll con uh, continue from there. Um, the Welcome Trust was founded in 1836, as, as I mentioned, and uh, in 1880, Silas Burroughs and Henry Welcome. Two pharmaceutical salesmen from America started a new company in London called Burroughs Welcome and Company. They used mass production and proactive marketing to sell remedies and medications through, throughout the UK and the territories uh, uh, colonized by Britain and so on and so forth. And uh, Welcome was a very wealthy and prominent figure in the growth of the modern pharmaceutical industry. So Henry Welcome was as a person, one of the major taproots of what we call Big Pharma. And we'll, we'll go on from there. Um, despite financial difficulties after the Second World War, uh, Welcome's business began to thrive again, pioneering a new approach to drug design. Su successful products included the first leukemia drug, immune suppressants for organ transplants, and antivirals such as AZT that was the first drug approved to treat HIV although other studies have called AZT uh, very toxic to the human system overall. Towards the end of the 20th century, the Wellcome Trust decided to sell the company, get this, which is now part of GlaxoSmithKline and no longer has any ownership or governance relationship with Wellcome. So the Wellcome Trust does work with GlaxoSmithKline as we work with many other healthcare companies when it helps us achieve our mission. So it's all about the big pharma network now is basically what they're saying. And um, the WHO Hub for Pandemic and Epidemic Intelligence, uh, readers and viewers can see more on the show notes. Basically, it gets into the co coronavirus, co uh, COVID-19 pandemic, it's saying, has changed the way we see the world. It's highlighted how interconnected and interdependent our lives are across countries and communities. Our shared global experience of the pandemic has helped us develop a deeper understanding of public health that includes all of us through our governments, through our businesses, and in our societies, and in communities around the world. So 
as this whole catalytic fund is being developed, and meanwhile, we have the uh, INB working on the treaty, we see this collectivist language, this all for one, one for all language. And so they're, they're definitely developing, you know, developing a more sophisticated surveillance network that would, in my opinion, go hand in hand with any treaty that they would develop. So we see the infrastructure uh, for the implementation of the treaty being developed along with the treaty's language itself. That's basically what we're seeing. Now, to summarize, uh, part of uh, what I've mentioned, part of this network that today uh, includes the United Nations Foundation. That organization turned 25 years old this past year, Brian, in 2023. And here's just some of the personalities involved in it. Ted Turner, a well-known media mogul and globalist, and Valerie Amos, who's um, basically a, a vice chair of the UN Foundation Board of Directors uh, and Master at the University of College in Oxford. So pretty prominent people there. A couple more. Her Majesty, Her Majesty Queen Rania Al Abdullah of Jordan is involved in this, and a well-known globalist fixture, Gro Harlem Brutland of Norway. She's been involved in the Global Cities Movement and various other UN movements for a very long time, and she's former Director General of the WHO. So that is the new component, Brian, that the WHO is bringing forward that would do a lot of the detailed work that would comport with the treaty they're trying to develop and complete by May 24th. And what I would add is uh, Rachel's presentation today gives a pretty good idea of what viewers and listeners could do with regards to the pandemic treaty and the international health regulations, namely that they could approach their councils and ask them, are they aware of these developments and does the city council have a view on this and might they take objection with some of the power and sovereignty compromising things that are going on at the WHO. So local councils should be made more aware of these things as well and see uh, how it ties into the other issues. So there you go. Uh, Mark, thank you very much. So we've we've got UN control of food production and land. We've got UN control of habitat and in the cities, 50-minute cities. And we've got the World Health Organization controlling everything to do with health and uh, pharmaceutical products. It's, it's obvious that the policy is global, not national. Well, what can we say? Big thank you to everybody who is... Uh, um, signing up for, to the UK column. We can only do what we do with your financial help. So thank you for supporting us and uh, welcome to the UK column. Have a look in the shop if you'd like to make a purchase. That would uh, be of great assistance to us. And uh, please do spread the information far and wide. That's why we put it out in the first place. Now, we've got uh, tomorrow, 1pm, we've got uh, an interview uh, which is with Alan Miller from Together, um, the campaign group Together. He was co-founder and chair, and uh, I'm sure that's going to be a very interesting discussion. We're more on the theme of activism. Uh, we've also got now on the UK column website the Madazalam murders, uh, which was the uh, informative, but in some ways very sad talk through the damage that's been done by the use of Madazalam. So if you didn't see it live, you can see it via the UK column website. And um, with the medical theme in mind, I'd also like to say a thank you to 
um, the person who emailed us to say, well, we are aware that a particular doctor, Charles Douglas Hoff, uh, British Columbia, was being dragged in front of a committee. This is coming up in March uh, because he's dared to speak out um, about uh, policy during COVID and lockdown and the use of uh, the medications and the vaccines at the time. So dangerous times if you're a medical professional who's got the courage to speak out. Now, we've also got uh, AV14 coming up, riding the wave. Uh, that's Sunday, the 24th of May. That's at the Leonardo Hotel in Milton Keynes. And if you go to the Alternative View website, you can find the details for that. Um, what else? We've got Stand in the Light, Four Days of Music and Good Vibes. That's May the 24th to the 27th. And um, that's going to be uh, Workington in the Lake District. More details, you can visit their website. And we've also got the Sounds Beautiful Festival 2024 um, in 15 acres of a beautiful estate and uh, more details for that on the website. And of course, you can also get um, a special promo code uh, if you're a UK column supporter. So lots of positive things happening, um, but we'll move from that on to the serious things, which is, uh, well, uh, a, <laughs> a test of our nuclear deterrent, Alex, which didn't go uh, particularly well. Indeed not, Brian. Uh, our uh, nuclear deterrent in Britain is only uh, the submarine branch. Uh, it's uh, in the Vanguard-class boats. Uh, HMS Vanguard herself was the one that did the latest test fire. Uh, before that, because of delays with uh, one of the vessels being in uh, extensive dry dock for repairs, uh, it was HMS Victorious back in 2016 that did an Atlantic firing test of the Trident missile. That one uh, went over the United States landward and uh, eventually self-destructed. This time, uh, it seems that once again, a data link, as in 2016, has been the, prob the problem causing the failed launch. Uh, HMS Vanguard was off the Florida coast and was aiming to send uh, the Trident missile several thousand miles mid-Atlantic to plunge down somewhere between Africa and South America. Instead, it landed a matter of yards uh, from where it had taken a broken surface. Unfortunately, His Majesty's Secretary of State for War, Grant Chaps, was on board to see uh, the flop and to have egg on his face. Declassified UK is one of the many outlets that has picked up on this. Of course, with their left-wing critique, they would say that this is, exposes the folly of nuclear weapons altogether. But I give them their due for uh, the good reporting they have done around intelligence and security. And uh, I've already talked to most of this, but at the bottom of this slide here, we see that after the flop, Mr. Shapps said that Trident, quote, remains the most reliable, not one of the most, the most reliable weapon system in the world. I'm sure you'll have a comment in a moment, bearing in mind that the competition is not just the US and France anymore. Um, over $1 trillion, they go on, will be spent globally uh, modernizing and developing the existing nine state arsenals. That's the above board ones, uh, Brian. We don't talk about ones like Israel, which with German help uh, have very sneaky nuclear boat capacities too. Uh, so the companies that make a killing from this, pardon the pun, are Boeing, Honeywell and Northrop Grumman above all. In Britain, BAE Systems, which is neither British nor aerospace in its name anymore, Rolls-Royce, uh, whose marine branch is in Norway, and Serco, well, that's more American than British these days to my mind, certainly a crown appendage, 
Uh, that money, of course, is all from us. That's where it's all come from. This consternation uh, of over the failed launch uh, has been felt by, by no one more keenly than by Hamish de Breton Gordon, the former tank uh, officer who mid-career was assigned, I think it was a surprise to him too at the time, to become an expert in chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear uh, attack and defence, CBRN. And here he fulminates in the Daily Telegraph in an opinion piece, Britain is increasingly defenceless and Putin knows it. By the uh, form of the link to this page, particularly when archived on archive.is, I think that what happened is a sub-editor chopped out the words from the beginning of this uh, uh, comment headline. It originally read, the failure of Trident shows that, or, uh, or Trident's failed launch shows that, and this was taken out. But De Breton Gordon uh, is nothing daunted. Uh, in this piece, he speaks about the Russian hordes steaming across Eastern Europe, real 1914 language, if not Victorian. And he goes on to say uh, that the Vanguard class uh, can uh, have a, 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 an estimated yield, because it's never been tested in anger, thank God, of 100 kilotons. And he gloats, to my mind, that just one of these, if it got through Moscow air defences, which I doubt, would be ample to flat, flatten the Kremlin and everything around it. That looks like rubbing his hand at the prospects to me. I don't like it at all. And it's not yet, not even two years since he was saying this in the Daily Telegraph, Britain should prepare for a nuclear war. Who would fire first is left open to question, I think, in this scheme. Uh, what else on this theme? United States Naval uh, um, Institution News, USNI News, uh, has got this piece. Now, the Virginia class stateside, don't be confused by the V in the name. These are not analogous to the Vanguard class in Britain. These are the fast attack boats. They're nuclear powered, so they're not silent but like diesel electrics, but they do not carry nuclear weapons. They do get into shallow waters and wreak havoc on the enemy, though. The U.S. Navy is supposed to have two per year, but now they've gone down to just asking for one per year from the congressional budget, and they're only just resurrecting, uh, because of the expense of that and the, and the slow pace of that production, only just resurrecting the production of amphibious ships. So um, that, that's something we've covered recently as well. You cannot land men without amphibious ships. I close the segment with this uh, breaking news. The... Um, uh, New York Times has uh, unexpectedly gloated to the public, revealed that the CIA built 12 secret spy bases along the Ukraine-Russia border and is giving us chapter and verse as repackaged here by Zero Hedge, which is in the show notes because it's open source access. Um, they're, they're, all, they're taunting us now in the West with you know everything that we were told we were conspiracy theorists and Kremlin fanboys for saying uh, that the guiding of missile strikes over the border into Russian Federation territory is being done by Western officers from bases on the Ukrainian side, as with that recent attack, which the French uh, pinned on the Americans that I reported a few weeks ago, uh, to, so, so as to preempt any claim that the Ukrainians did it themselves. Uh, along with that, we've got Russian generals now claiming that uh, some of the deaths um, uh, or the, the captured bodies found in Ukraine have got uh, tattoos and insignia indicating that they are regular servicemen from Western NATO countries. So why the West is doing this through the official state sanctioning, as it were, of the New York Times is is, uh, is hard to guess. Perhaps they think that in the desperate stage that the war is entering, uh, this, this admission had better be out of the bag beforehand. Any thoughts, Brian? Uh, lots of thoughts, uh, Alex. Uh, unfortunately, the, the clock will stop me saying much, but of course we've seen the demise of the 
military in UK over a great many years. And now it's it's really got to the stage where major systems are failing. And of course, that launch of that missile, utter disaster. But UK column has shown that the Navy in particular and the submarine service desperately short of trained people. Uh, morale, we know, in the submarine fleet at one stage was very, very bad indeed. And those are the conditions where people make mistakes and things go wrong. So very serious. And at the same time, to have warmongers suggesting that we go to war with Russia seems to be complete madness. But I think the thing that our viewers and listeners need to think about is that it isn't politicians. It's clearly not politicians that are making the policy, but it's people and powers within the political parties that are driving this agenda. And I think we're going to men mention Victoria Newland uh, uh, in a few minutes when uh, Mark is speaking to us again. But who is driving, uh, the, who is making the drive for war um, and the West becoming ever more antagonistic against Russia? At the same time, our military capability is declining. And of course, we can't produce even the weapons that Ukraine needs at the moment. I'd better leave it there, but we'll hopefully do more on that um, another time. Mark, let's bring you back in. And um, I think you're looking at what Rand Paul has been up to. Uh, thanks, Brian. Yeah, Rand Paul, of course, is among those rare politicians in the States. There's been Walter Jones, the late Walter Jones of North Carolina, who I had a pleasure of interviewing a few years back in his office, Justin Amash, um, and of course, Thomas Massey, also from Kentucky, where Rand Paul's from. Rand Paul, of course, is the son of the noted former congressman and former presidential candidate, Ron Paul, a libertarian Republican. So there's kind of a backbencher tradition here of challenging the um, dominant narrative. And Rand Paul is doing it in full form. He speaks on the Senate floor, it says here in his own press release in opposition to the foreign aid spending bill. This was recently February 13th. Uh, there's a quick note here after that. Uh, Senator Rand Paul, in a continuation of his efforts to protect America's borders instead of Ukraine's borders, spoke on the floor as part of a talking filibuster to force debate on the foreign aid spending bill. Dr. Paul spoke three times during yesterday's filibuster. He's a optometrist, optometrist, I believe. He's not a medical doctor in that traditional sense. But here's what he had to say, some pretty pointed stuff. What does their money go for? Do we know what they're doing with their money in Ukraine? Well, we do know that the money wanted to, went to fund six fashion brands to go to the Paris Fashion Show. We do know that it's funding small businesses to sell ladies' handbags. We do know that it's paying for the salaries of 57,000 first responders. What about the first responders in our country? What about the people who get in an ambulance and have a $35,000 bill in our country? What about tackling the problems of America first? Instead, this bill is a Ukraine first bill. It's a Ukraine first policy. According to the Ukraine first party, which includes elites of both parties, war is good. War is useful. War profits make us stronger. Sounds a bit Orwellian. Yeah, pretty powerful stuff there. That's for sure. And uh, in the interest of time, we'll move on from there.
Um, this is some of what he had to say. I know that my first, first oath of office and my first responsibility is to my country, to America. If we are to send $100 billion overseas, it will be a total of $170 billion. In addition, he said, never ever in the history of the United States have we ever sent so much money to one country, $170 billion. This is about one and a half, almost 1.75 times the entire economy of Ukraine. He is a little bit incorrect. In the 1940s, the early 1940s, FDR sent the Lend-Lease money to Russia in a little over $11 billion in dollars back then. But in today's dollars, that'd be $180 billion for that Lend-Lease of material and money to Russia. So this is actually the second largest ever. But now to get the other point of view, and absolutely the opposite point of view, let's hear State Department official Victoria Newland, who of course had something to do 10 years ago with overturning the pro-Russian government in Ukraine. And let's hear what she had to say to the Center for Strategic International Studies recently. We all remember where we were two years ago in the months and days and hours leading up to Putin's February 24, 2022 full-scale invasion of Ukraine. U.S. intelligence and indeed CSIS's own reports had been warning for months about Putin's massive war plan and the terrible toll that could await Ukraine. Week after week in the winter of 21 and 22, we watched the Russian military take up positions on three sides of Ukraine. The U.S., as you'll remember, offered negotiations to try to avert Russia's planned invasion. But those negotiations sputtered very quickly because Putin had already made up his mind. Yet at that time, many still hoped that the troop movements were just a pressure tactic. Even some Ukrainians believed that. But many of us feared that if Putin did order his troops in, Russia's massive military could roll over Kiev within a week, decapitate Ukraine's democratic government, and install puppets of Moscow. But that did not happen. Instead, Putin got Newton's third law, an equal and opposite reaction to everything he hoped to gain. Instead of fleeing, President Zelensky led. Instead of capitulating, Ukrainians fought and so bravely. Instead of fracturing, the West united, and instead of shrinking, NATO grew. The U.S. rallied the world to Ukraine's defense in those early hours, days, and weeks, and we've kept that global coalition of more than 50 nations united for these two years, standing strongly with Ukraine. Well, you can't say we don't give both sides of the story, Brian. Any comments? <laughs> Well, I, I have to say, I find that uh, woman extremely objectionable, the arrogance, the sneering. And she is one, in my opinion, one of the warmongers that made sure the war in Ukraine happened. And the figures I'm looking at, 438,000 uh, casualties on the Ukrainian side, plus the Russians. She's not bothered about the death at all. Um, it's a proxy war for the benefit of uh, her and her elite within the US. A lot we could discuss on that. But thank you for that segment, Mark. Um, well, if we've got trouble with a, 
a military system in America on a worldwide scale. It seems the Germans are reverting to things that we've seen before. Or was that a bit harsh, Alex? Do you know the uh, sci-fi and also sort of COD war drama uh, slogans like resistance is futile, dissent will be crushed? Uh, Try this one on for size by Nancy Faeser, the German interior minister at federal level. They also have 16 interior ministers in the states of uh, Germany. But she says those who mock the state must be dealt with by a strong state. And she's not some Eastern German, East German battle axe, uh, unlike some other German politicians. She's a Frankfurt lawyer. She's supposed to be trained in constitutionality and in Western German freedom. Never mind. Let's see what's been said here. First of all, the electoral scene. I've shown this um, regular weekend poll before in previous rounds. Uh, this is pretty much the definitive one on uh, how would you vote in the next elections? Uh, and the, the the question here was uh, if they're held in their regular time slot of August, uh, autumn 2025. Now, black, unlike most countries, stands for the Conservatives, uh, Union, because it's a, a fusion of two different parties. The CSU in Bavaria is different from the CDU, but that's the largest party, the party of um, Angela Merkel when she was uh, uh, previously uh, the Chancellor. But you can see that the Red Socialists and the Greens are not really in second place anymore. Of course, it's a, not a first-past-the-post system, so it's a question of who can form coalitions. But look, shooting up into second place in popularity stakes over the one-fifth uh, mark now is Alternativa für Deutschland, which Faeser and her uh, Myrmidons would uh, like to ban at this point. And before we move on, I'd also point out that second from right, BSW, is Sarah Wagenknecht's new country. She really is an Eastern uh, uh, East German lady, but has gone completely the other way, come out of the, the hard left uh, and become something of a, a popular socialist or a national thinking uh, politician. Uh, of course, you can't say national socialist in Germany and no pun is intended there. Uh, but she has stood up for uh, limited migration, for example. And look what's happened. She's more than doubled uh, the popularity of her party compared with the, the, the party that she broke from at the start of the year, Die Linke. There's a message in there somewhere. So panic. Uh, what ha happens as a result? Remix news, which I find some of the best for covering Central Europe in English with links to sources. Here is syndicating in English a column by Peter Feher writing in Modjor Hirlop, which is the, I would say, the, 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 one of the, the, the top two or three Hungarian daily titles only online these days. And it used to be um, pro-liberal in the early days after communism collapsed or at least moved phase to, to a new to, in, in, the, in the 90s to a new system, uh, new strategy. Uh, but here there's just an opinion piece people can read in the show notes. German government's witch hunt against AFD paves the road to dictatorship. If you think that's uh, over the top language by those notoriously conservative Hungarians, nothing of it. Because here we'll start with remix again. Uh, there is a 13 point plan. Really, there is a 13-point plan to crush AFD. They are called rechtsextremisten, right-wing extremists, and none who donate to such a party shall remain undetected. This is a quotation from Faeser's speech that, uh, from which that quotation on the, uh, the image was put, uh, taken a moment ago. So uh, it's targeting bank accounts time, although that's just been found unconstitutional in Canada, as I recently reported. Let's go, as usual, uh, into a bit more detail. So... The sitting on stage with her were, were the new head of the German equivalent of the FBI or MI5, the BFV, 
that's Thomas Haldenwang. His predecessor has become an AFD member himself and is facing persecution now. And she was also there with the head of the German police uh, at uh, federal level again. Um, and here, it, it sounds Maoist, really, the, the use of this adverb, but the, the title of the speech was Resolutely Combating Right-Wing Extremism. Here the 13 plans, uh, so she was saying, basically, I have my policeman and my spook on stage to tell you what I'm going to do. We don't have time for all the points, but Eugippius, uh, the blogger who uh, is second to none in covering Germany, uh, has covered it all here in a blog, which you will find uh, in the show notes. The byline to this piece is, before living in pods and eating insects, there were standing in bread lines and eking out an existence in 50 square meter socialist flats. So he clearly sees it's a return to East Germany. Uh, it's a wide ranging plan, as he puts it, to restrict speech, travel and economic activity of political dissidents. And she actually said in the speech, did Nancy Faeser, that we need to control the thought and speech patterns of our own people. He summarizes it thus. Uh, I'll go back one. Uh, that's. Uh, I think I've got the order wrong. Yes, here we are. To summarise, right-wing extremists are a nebulous and difficult to identify population of political subverters who must be unmasked by the political police. This is necessary to control prevailing thought and speech patterns in Germany. Once these extremists have been identified by our guardians of orthodoxy, they are to be punished for their mockery of the state and the regulatory apparatus is to be repurposed to deprive them of everything from income to bank accounts. Their names are to be published so that they can be more easily intimidated and harassed by state-adjacent organisations for their political views. This is the German tactic also seen in Britain of sending some tame activists uh, in, uh, intelligent information so that they can bash people. And they are to be prevented from crossing borders within Schengen, this is, and from associating with each other. This is a direct summary of Faser's conference with her chief of police and chief spook. Um, it, the, the, uh, the, folk, the, the, the persecution is moving into new areas too, and also the pretexts for persecution. So E.ON, a major uh, energy provider in countries including Germany, saying that the electricity uh, generation grid is completely at its limit because uh, you know, uh, uh, electricity guzzling new customers are coming online. Why is that relevant? Because just across the border in Switzerland, we see here, as reported by Swiss Info, that the Federal Council, the seven-man body that does the job of a head of state in other countries, wants, if there is a power outage or power shortage, to have the ability as an executive to bar certain websites and to lock down mobile data. Uh, you can only guess, really, what kind of websites that would be and whether it would truly be uh, a question of uh, electricity uh, shortages or other reasons for barring the sites. Meanwhile, in Canada, I reported on a Canadian bill the other day. This time, we've got an amendment to the criminal code that's been tabled. It's at its first hearing, and the summary says it all. This enactment amends the criminal code of Canada to eliminate as a defence against hate speech crimes the uh, defence that a person in good faith expressed or attempted to establish by an argument an opinion on a religious subject or an opinion based on a belief in a religious text. This is criminalizing the Bible in public. There's no two ways about it. It's at its first stage in Canada. Uh, Alex, really, really serious stuff that we're bringing forward to our audience today. And it's all, it's like a beast emerging. It's all coming into plain sight. Uh, but I'm going to say that uh, whilst the powers that be look at us, the public, and say that we are extreme, we are the threat, we're right wing, um, they are the ones who are actually causing the problems at the moment. But have a look at this. Thank you to the um, 
um, member of our audience uh, pointed this out to me. Um, basically, a look at uh, broadcasting that's been going on. Uh, a committee has been formed to have a look at it. The Mail reporting here, the BBC has become too woke for working class viewers who are tuning out from the broadcaster a poll finds. And there's a little bit of text here. It's talking about the research business public first found that the perception of political correctness in BBC news coverage means that a significant minority of working class viewers are tuning into rivals such as GB News and Talk TV. And um, so that's it. Uh, I picked out this name and I'll show you why. James Frayne, one of the founding partners of Public First, warned while giving evidence at the Lords Committee hearing, looking to the future of news that his sentiment sorry, that this sentiment could spread to other demographics. So here's the inquiry from uh, the UK Parliament site, the future of news. And uh, we can tell you a little bit about it. Uh, so it's, uh, it's um, the Lord's Communication and Digital Committee looking at the future of news. It'll examine issues around impartiality, trust, and the impact of tech platforms and AI on news media. And the inquiry comes amidst the world's largest ever election year with over 2 billion voters going to the polls across 50 countries. That's something that Mike Robinson has flagged up. So they're panicking. Let's have a look at the people that get invited. Well, it's small print, so I'm going to make it easy for you. Of course, the only people who get invited to comment are actually the major media players themselves. Nobody else is going to get a look in. Um, but um, if we just uh, press the button here, we should get a little arrow uh, pointing to Mr. James Frayne, the founding partner at Public First. And if I go to their website to learn a little bit more about him uh, in the text about him and his experience, it says this. James specializes in communicating with working and lower middle class audiences. Um, this I found unbelievably creepy. Um, that he's a specialist in those horrible, ordinary, poor, working class people. Alex, I've got to say, uh, just give me a little bit of comment on that. But it's, it's not only arrogance, it's like we're dealing with a different form of human being as he comments on the need to get the message into those, uh, that group of awful people. We British are notoriously poor at languages and unduly impressed when other people say, um, I have decent French or I know a bit of Italian. Well, James has come along and fronted up to his employer and said, I speak fluent pleb, here's a job, and it's worked. Um, just a couple of and finalists from me. This graphic is from uh, a piece which uh, will be linked in the show notes, uh, one of the many examples of Substack coming up with better stuff than the legacy media. The graphic alone is worth uh, lingering on. The rise of dopamine culture, and I won't read it all, but in every area of recreation and culture, and we could expand it to religion and serious subjects as well, we see that there's been a two-stage transfer from slow traditional culture where one does one's own activities producing and then through the middle stage, perhaps we say the mid-20th mid century, late 20th century, fast modern culture, the equivalent of fast food. You watch other people do things, traditional media still. Finally, the dopamine hit culture, you know, that's the, the, the red flashes on social media, you've got messages. That is uh, where everything from music to relationships is just uh, to hitting a single button or, or a single finger swipe on an app. Uh, it's very telling about the attention span going from hours to minutes to seconds. And another, and finally from me, this is from the um, 
sorry, I'm, I'm going back one there. Um, this is from a Welsh viewer who uh, volunteers in charity shops, and uh, they were sent off to Carfili, not their normal uh, place of work. And this four-foot-high triptych had been donated to sell to an unsuspe unsuspecting member of the public. I don't know if you would find the calm of any space uh, enhanced by the presence of this triptych, uh, which seems to suggest that you know you're going to be gnawed to death by by unspeakable beasts with disembodied heads. But somebody created it, and somebody thought the public would would benefit from it. Yeah, well, perhaps we should send it up to Westminster, Alex. Um, I think we need to end there. So I'm going to say thank you very much for that. A very serious news. Big thank you to the guests that we've had on UK Column News today. But it is absolutely evident that we are being attacked uh, via policy, which is coming from a globalist foundation, if you like, uh, through our national governments. And it needs to be called out. And it's so encouraging uh, to see both Rachel and Artwell challenging their local councils, because, of course, it's the local uh, public bodies that enforce the globalist agenda. So if you can get in and challenge your local councillors, actually you're doing a lot more than you may think you are doing. So we'll encourage you to do that. And of course, Rachel has shown that if you do it in a calm, professional manner, you can get a response from the councillors that you are attempting to educate as to what's really happening. We will end there. We will be back for Extra UK Column Extra in a few minutes. Big thank you to our audience today and a huge thank you to everybody who's supporting UK Column financially because we can only do this due to the generosity of the people donating to UK Column. We'll end there. Thank you. Back in a minute for Extra. Bye-bye.